Welcome to Metro 30, the Metro Monthly's weekly conversation with the community. Hello, and welcome to Metro 30. I'm your host, Mark Pago. 2019 is the 60th anniversary of Motown. Today, we're going to delve into some obscure Motown history. If you thought that the Funk Brothers and the Andantes, who were Motown's in-house female backup singers, were obscure, try the classical musicians who played on countless singles during Motown's heyday in the 1960s. This group of classically trained musicians came from the Detroit Symphony String Section, and Gordon Staples was concertmaster. Among these classically trained session musicians was Carol Coleman. Today we have Adaku Zeroni, who is the eldest daughter of Carol Coleman. Today we're going to talk about some of those sessions, explore the idea of musical creativity, and also hear a few stories along the way. But first, a bit about Carol Coleman. Carol came to Motown at the urging of Bertha Gordy, who was the mother of label founder Barry Gordy Jr. Mrs. Gordy and Carol's mother attended the same AME in Detroit and were friends. Carol, who was studying music at the University of Michigan, joined Motown in 1963 as part of the classical string section. Although principally a harpist, Carol said she sometimes played piano during sessions, which sometimes even included Holland Dozier Holland's little toy piano. Carol worked at Motown from early 1963 through late 1966. She joined the label shortly before the company's international explosion. Her performances appear on top 10 singles, album cuts, and unreleased material. Carol performed in sessions for the Supremes and the Four Tops, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, Kim Weston, The Marvelettes, The Contours, Billy Eckstein, Barbara McNair, The Isley Brothers, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, and countless others. Carol appears on Ain't No Mountain High Enough, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, Walk Away Renee by the Four Tops, The Hunter Gets Captured by the Game by the Marvelettes. Her first studio improvisation was for Kim Weston's A Thrill A Moment. Adaku. Tell us a little bit about your mother's early background and formative years. When did your mother's family come to Detroit? You know, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I do know that mom, um, she, I'll kind of start like at the end, before the end anyway, uh, before she passed and, and kind of work backward a little bit. Um, I remember she and I, you know, uh, I would joke around with her and go, Mom, you need to get some life insurance, you know, because, you know, when you get famous, everyone's going to want your music and, you know, your time. And she and, and I go, where, where do you want me to lay your old ragged bones? And she's like, I'm a Detroiter. I've always been a Detroiter. It is my home. So that's the only place where I can be. It's where I found, you know, my love of music, um, you know, met your father. Uh, so it's kind of like that, (laughs) you know, um, I was born there, you know, we moved to Ann Arbor a little bit later, you know, um, but mom has always had this thing with Detroit. She, you know, the connection with Motown, um, I remember as a kid, uh, going there and, um, my father had a business on Woodward Avenue and my mom, you know, as we would drive, uh, to go see him, you know, to take him lunch or whatever, um, we, people would see her and know her, you know, and go, oh, aren't you that girl that used to play the piano for church? Oh, I remember you and you, your mother said, oh, I wish you would just put that, take, just stop practicing, just stop playing the piano. My mom was always, um, playing the piano, playing her harp, um, just her life is music. It's a long answer, but 
No, <laughs> no it's, it's a very interesting answer too, though. Now, your mom attended Cast Tech. What do you know about that, and how did that help shape your mom's uh, background? Well, at uh, Cast Tech, um, she, as far as I know, uh, is where she really learned that she wanted to play the harp. Um, the story that I remember about Castec and she was, um, uh, I think she was maybe about 15 or 16 and she heard some music, you know, and she just thought it was really beautiful. And she, she followed the sound to where it was coming from, you know, cause she said again, you know, it was the most beautiful thing she'd ever heard. And she found out it was a harp and she's like, yep, that's what I'm going to play. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the harp is a very difficult instrument. I mean, it's not, it has the elements of a lot of other instruments, but it's also very big and it's heavy to move around. And Yes, it is heavy. <laughs> and and, and uh, did she choose that instrument because of the sound or because of what she thought she could do with it or both? All of the above. Definitely all of the above. And my mother, she would take songs um, and, uh, you know, notes and put them together and just make the most awesome things with them. Um, she, I remember just now, actually, she told me this story about how when she was practicing early when she first started learning it. And uh, the strings that were on there, uh, usually like um, when you're learning like a guitar or, or any kind of string instrument, they'll usually will put, um, I guess, uh, she always called them catgut, you know, uh, uh, strings or, or nylon strings, I guess is what they are. If we're talking about ethically, you know, harvested things. Um, but she was saying that they were the, the steel uh, strings and she was having a hard time with it and she said she just got quiet and she prayed and then she just started playing uh, my earliest memory as a kid really uh, was her playing uh, um, I, I, I don't remember the composer but I know it was Scheherazade there's a, a section a classical piece called Scheherazade and she would just it was like she was playing through butter, you know, or, or just the way her, her fingers, you know, would glide over the strings. It was just absolutely beautiful. And I don't even know what you, the question you asked me, I hope I answered it. <laughs> yeah, you answered it. Now, one thing I find very interesting about Detroit, though, is that there were a number of uh, harpists that came out of Detroit. And it's my understanding that Cast Tech actually had a harp program at mm -hmm. the high school. And, uh, of course, you know, I know that Dorothy Ashby was an important influence of your mother's. Right, right, right. And there was also Patricia Terry Ross, who was a family friend of yours. But your mom is a figure at Motown, but a lot of people didn't know who the musicians were. And there were reasons for that. One, you know, one thing that has been said in, in the popular uh, histories, Barry Gordy, the founder, didn't want his musicians to get poached. So there were no musician credits on any of the albums. But when you look at the history of Motown, people have come to understand who the Funk Brothers were. They've come to understand even who the Andantes were. But the classical musicians are, are really the, the missing link. Nobody knows anything about them. 
And uh, they did come from the Detroit Symphony. And a lot of people think that the entire symphony played on these songs. But in reality, yeah. it was a reduced group of people that Gordon Staples was the concert master. But your mom came to Motown in 1963, and she was there through 1966, the end of that. And if you think about what was recorded during that time, and you think about also what was released later on that maybe was what would what you know what is known as being in the can there's a there's a lot of work that your mother played on and there's there are a lot of hits that your mother played on did she ever talk about those sessions or the people she worked with um just a little bit like she talked about working with um uh actually there was this one story and i and i'm trying to remember exactly how she would say it but i just remember who she would put her hand on her hip and shake and she, and, you know, and I'd laugh and she goes, yeah, that's why I'm not a Supreme. You know, I could have been one, <laughs> you know, so I know she, um, uh, was there with, uh, Diana. She often spoke, um, uh, and I don't know if it's a quote, a direct quote, but, uh, what she exactly said, but she goes, uh, she's talking to Miss Ross and, and, and they were discussing, you know, childhood and being poor. And my mother recounts that um, Diana said to her, yeah, I'm rich and I'll never be poor ever again. So there's that. And um, she mentioned like Stevie. Um, I do remember as a kid when we lived in Detroit, um, I don't know. Uh, it had to have been, of course, in the 70s because I was born and, you know, shortly after mom left, you know, Motown. But I do remember Stevie calling to like borrow her harp or borrow her, you know, uh, whenever he was in town for a concert. Um, and that's really all that I can remember. Some people may not have known your mother by her name, but they knew her by her nickname, which was school teacher. School teacher, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, so at Motown, she was known as school teacher. Right, and, right. Yeah. Uh, she said Smokey would call her that a, a lot too. Yeah, I remember her speaking, saying his name, yeah. Explain a little bit about your mother's background. And because she had a lot going on, it wasn't that Motown was the only only thing that she was doing at that time. She had other things that she was doing, among mm -hmm. them teaching school and going to school. Right, right. She was a teacher, uh, music teacher. She uh, started out um, as teaching uh, English um uh, classes to like adult uh, adults, you know, um, and I don't know, it's such a good, she didn't really talk about it too, about that stuff too much as I just know, I just remember just little bits and pieces, but yeah, um, as a kid growing up, you know, uh, my mother, God bless her, you know, she was always so protective of me. And whenever she would go to a different school, I had to go with her too. Well, the other thing though, is that because because she had that day job, you know, she was, I, I think what the principal way that a lot of the, the string people worked is that they were, they worked out of a special room at Motown. It wasn't the main studio. It was a smaller room, which was known as the overdub room because, yeah. because their music, the strings were added. They, the, there were elements of the Motown songs that were added after the core band, you know, rhythm track and everything was done. And so, your mom was doing uh, overdubs with a lot of stuff, and mm -hmm. but she also performed in a lot of sessions, or she was in the studio 
at times where she may not have been performing, but she was there, you know, for some really important moments. And right, yeah, she did often speak about that too, you know. That, uh, and I and I would ask her, I'm like, well, well, what were you doing? How did you know this? I mean, people would come in and say, oh, we're going to go to this after party, or we got this gig going on next, and. You know, and they go, oh, school teacher, you can't. She would say, oh, school teacher, you can't go because you got you got to go home. You know, you got to do your your, your other thing. Um, but yeah, my mom, she uh, I know she really enjoyed being in that environment and yet not really being a part of all of the stuff that goes on as a musician, you know, Um my mom's kind of a little church girl, so you know she had to had to be good. <laughs> and, and that's one thing I think that really is interesting, though, too, because your mom doesn't show up in any documented history of Motown. Uh, and and you know I I knew her, and and when I, as I got to know her, she always would say that she never wanted the spotlight. You know, she wasn't seeking mm-hmm. fame, but she was there during some really some pretty important moments at the company. I mean, if you think about it, she was there before Motown really exploded into this. Yeah, huge, before it exploded. This huge yeah. thing. And going back to 1963 when she came there, 1963, and she, you know, she told me this, and I knew this too, is that the things that were being recorded in 1963 were also being released a year later in 1964. So the groundwork for how great Motown was going to be was being laid when she first came there. And, you know, and there were some hits, of course, before your mom came there. But her involvement there was really during the the really some of the peak years at Motown. So when you think about some of the songs that she was on, uh, I mean, she's playing on and I, you know, I. Your mom's mentioned this specifically that she played on the Tammy Terrell Marvin Gaye sessions, and one of the oh yeah, and one <laughs> and, and one of the big ones is is Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and that's your mother opening the song. I mean, it you don't necessarily associate a harp sound with some of the sounds that your mom created. She's plucking the strings there, but someone may confuse it for a different type of instrument but that was your mom opening up that song and of course she mm-hmm. figures prominently into that song and um you know that's just that's like one of the probably the one of the most important memorable songs that motown ever created was was that song yeah. did she ever talk about about that type of thing or uh or yeah she did it? She did. Uh, no specific moments, but just, you know, uh, whenever that song would come on, she'd turn it up, you know, and kind of get a little quiet, you know, uh, a little reflective. So uh, it was definitely a moment for her. I mean, she would often talk about how sweet Miss Terrell was, you know, um, and how um, she did say once um, she was at the, the studio there. And Marvin Gaye was singing, but he was sing- she said the way he was singing, it wasn't, you know, the bebop stuff and, you know, the things that they were playing and, you know, the go-go and all that. Um, he was singing a, a really sweet song. And she says, you know, I, it was almost kind of like Mario Lanza, you know, she said. And she said it was, you know, it was a beautiful voice. He had a really beautiful voice, you know, that he didn't really get a chance to, 
and how she felt to really open up and, and, and show what he could really, really do. And, um, but yeah, no, no, no major moments really uh, through it was just a lot of little, it's almost like she was a fly on the wall, you know, uh, with a microphone, you know, just, just watching everything that happened and all the people going through and, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, she never wanted to really be a part of the spotlight and the fame and, you know, all the hustle and bustle. She just really wanted to just be a part of, you know, making music, just making music. You know, I, I think about uh, some of the sessions your, mo- your mom played on and uh, some of them are still being unearthed, you know, as recently as, as a couple of years ago. Um, your mom played on hits by some major people, but also some some smaller artists or people that were maybe not as commercially viable as some of the larger people. And Barbara McNair was one of them. She came she came to Motown. Uh, she had a very successful career in film, television, and also Broadway. When she came into Motown, she was sort of you know, she wasn't a big hit maker, but she was sort of like that middle of the road adult temporary artist, which kind of makes you realize, you know, that, OK, well, heart music probably would be good on some of these standards that she would be doing. And she was doing things like Strangers of the Night, but she yeah, also yeah. Adult, adult contemporary treatments of maybe some of the Motown songs. And, and your mom played on quite a bit of Barbara McNair's material. Yeah, that's actually a, a name that I did hear a lot, Barbara McNair, uh, a lot. Uh, and I never associated her with uh, Motown. I, I, yeah, I never associated her with Motown. I just, you know, heard her name. And, and, and as I've gone back, you know, since she's passed and everything, you know, and some of the same things that you've, uh, you know, unearthed and, and shared with me, I was like, oh, wow, that's, I know that song. You know, it's 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 things that you hear all the time. It's kind of like the the TV on in the background, you know, uh, playing a commercial that you're not really paying attention to, but you know all the words to. Yeah. Now, if we jump back and talk a little bit more about Stevie Wonder, your mom was a school teacher, and she was, you know, she was grading papers a lot of times at Motown, and she said that she would sit in the lobby, grading papers, and Stevie would be waiting for his mother to pick him up. And she had a lot of opportunity to interact with Stevie at that time when he was very young. And uh, I thought that was very interesting because we think of how great Stevie is now. Right, he's untouchable. (laughs) Yeah, but at the time, he was was just a very young, uh, you know, he was an adolescent. And and your mom, I think, from what I gather the way she was, I think she was probably pretty protective of him. And, uh, you know, and, and just probably those moments in that lobby were just knowing your mother's personality. I'm sure she imparted a lot of things uh, during that time. Yeah. I'm sure she did. You know, my mom, she, uh, she was a school teacher, of course, but um, always had words and pearls of wisdom, you know? Um, But again, like I was saying earlier, um, when we started uh, that, I do remember Stevie would call quite a bit uh, to our place and um, talk to mom. And I don't always know what they were talking about. I know when a couple times he did send for her and uh, when she couldn't go, uh, she let him use her harp. 
which I thought was kind of cool. I remember going back to school as a kid and bragging about that and nobody believed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, fu that's funny. Now, what what your mother did at Motown, though, as a session musician, she it was some of the material was were scored pieces that, you know, that an arranger had created. But other things were improvisations. I think you can tell when you listen to, you know, the different things that she had done, which ones were improvisations and what, which ones were, you know, were scored. And one of one of the stories that your mom told me, she said that Shankar had just performed at the University of Michigan. She saw him at Hill Auditorium. And mm -hmm. Barry Gordy told your mom, can you make yeah. can you make your harp sound like a sitar? And huh. and your and because of how See mom mom liked you best. She didn't tell me this story. <laughs> well because 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 how the songs were recorded, and your mom said this too, that many times song titles weren't on the lead sheets on you know on, on the music stand, and that she would play pieces that would be in songs and she didn't know which song it was or when it would you know when it would be released or anything like that and mm -hmm. that led, i think that led to a lot of uh not confusion but a lot of not knowing when exactly what actually, piece you're on yeah which actually yeah. which piece she was on but there's a song and going back to barbara mcnair though there was a song that barbara mcnair recorded and it was it was called here i am baby which the marvelettes recorded a couple of years after that after the, the original recording that barbara mcnair did and your mom's playing on this and she's starting off and it's you know it, it's a harp and but then there's like this like this sound to it that it just morphs into something different and it sounds like a sitar and you know and it, and it had that characteristic of 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 an eastern instrument and i'm pretty sure that based on the time frame that song was when that song was recorded and when yeah. your mom was approached by barry gordy about this that that's probably the, one of the songs that she had played on that she ma was making her song her harp sound like a sitar but she also was <laughs> that also, is cool she also was doing improvisation on that song too though so mm -hmm. It's unexpected. It's like it, it goes from something that's, you know, very melodic and what you would characterize a harp as sounding like. But then it goes into this improvisation, which I think is really one of the things that I appreciated about your mom's playing is that she learned all the classical compositions. She learned, you know, the performance mm -hmm. uh, standards and everything. But she also was a really good improvisational player and what i'm wondering is that uh, not everyone you know not everyone can improvise but your mom could was that more about her personality or was it the spirit of the music you think that was moving her uh i think it was a lot about her personality you know of course def most definitely the spirit moved her but mom was one to to go and and do what she felt you know um, she would often take songs um, that were, you know, like Claire de Lune. Claire de Lune was something, it was like one of her very favorite songs. She'd play it on the piano, play it on the harp. Um, she would even pick up the oboe, uh, or not the oboe, uh, the clarinet, which drove me crazy, uh, and try and play it. But um, she would, would improvise that, you know, like she would change the key, you know, uh, uh, the tempo, you know, and just kind of make it her own, you know, and just have fun with it. 
You know, she was always doing that kind of thing. She'd hear something, you know, like a, a phrase from a, a song, you know, someone hums something and she'd make, she's created several symphonies of her own just on that, just, just playing around, you know, and, 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 and improvising, most definitely. Well, you know, and also her, her improvising too. It almost like, even though she was trained classically, she had a jazz ear though, too. I mean, she was, uh-huh. her, her improvisations were like the improvisations you would hear in a jazz musician. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, there are many times, uh, for sure. Um, she had, uh, what do you, the, the fake book is what they call it, you know, with all the chords and everything in there. And she would often say, oh, I don't need that. I just need to know what key it's in and I, I'll go. Um, but she did have a, a trio there uh, that she uh, worked with, um, bass player um, um, and uh, guitar player and everything. Uh, she even did one year, there was like, um, there was only one done. They, I guess they couldn't really get things going uh, in Ann Arbor, but it was like a, a benefit or, or, or a, a song um, festival or something for the homeless. And there were several uh, groups that got together. I'll have to get you more information about that, too, by the way. I just remembered that. Um, but, yeah, that was my mom. <laughs> uh, now, she also, you know, she played the harp and she played the piano. Was Did she give equal time to those or was it what was in the room? It was what was in the room. <laughs> Most definitely what was in the room. Uh, she would often go from one to the other to see, you know, what she just played on her piano, how she could transpose it onto the harp or vice versa. And she was doing that in her head with just walking over and doing that in her head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, growing up, how did you witness the creative process? I mean, what, what, was it something that your mom needed quiet time or? Oh, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> she needed quiet time um yeah. and i've got actually bins upon bins of mom um much of which i was present for where she was recording herself and sometimes she there was be one back in the day when everybody used the you know the cassette tapes for those of you kids who don't know what those are um but she would take a cassette tape and have like one song on it and she would play over and over and over and over and over uh, the song until she got it just right the way she liked it. Or, I mean, it, it was one song, but it was different every time she played it. Either she's playing and singing or just playing. But yeah, she needed absolute, you know, stay out of here. Don't bother me, you know, or if we like me or my brother or sister, uh, at the time, were humming. She would take some, what hum that again, <laughs> you know, and she'd use that. It was really kind of incredible. I'd, uh, as a child, you know, you know, I'm a kid. I just wanted to play with my Barbies, you know, chew bubble gum. I wasn't thinking about all that kind of stuff. But my mom was, you know, she was a monster <laughs> with the music. She really was. Well, she also said that, you know, she talked about uh, the creative process, though, among the producers of Motown or the songwriters. Your mom also practiced in the studio, and sometimes they would ask her to play a, a classical piece again, and and it was because they were taking notes. They heard something in those songs that could be possibly 
the basis for creating a hit. Creating a, pop, a hit, yeah. In a pop song. And yeah. uh, there was one classical piece that your mom played that ended up as being a uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas song later on. But And your mom was very careful to point out that it wasn't plagiarism. It was hearing something and taking a mood or 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 just a snippet of something and creating a, an entirely different thing out of it. Yeah, yeah. I also remember your mom saying this once too, though, that the highest level of composition is dream is, is dreaming the composition. Dreaming it. Oh yeah. And mm-hmm. and she told me that you know that Stevie would Stevie Wonder would dream composition. Your mom said that it didn't come to her right away that there was at one point where she started dreaming compositions. Did she ever talk mm-hmm. about that? Oh yeah. She would talk about that for sure. Um, and I, I would know really when she'd have one of those dreams cause she'd, those were the days when she would be in front of the piano, you know, uh, on her music stand, just with her pian with her pencil, I could just hear from, you know, her writing, uh, music, you know, and she'd play specific phrases over and try and, and, and figure out, you know, what sounded best or in terms of the tempo or, or, you know, but yeah, she, she dreamt music quite a bit, quite a bit. She would even call me <laughs> after she would wake up, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, you know, and I'm thinking there's something wrong and she's like, listen to this. And then she'd sit down on the piano. I'm like, mom, not now. She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on, hold on. You're going to, you, you, you better listen. And so I'd go, okay, and then she'd play. And I'm thinking it would be just one song, but it would be several songs. <laughs> so, again, I repeat, my mom was a, um, a monster with the music. Uh, now, when you hear some of your mother's performances on Motown songs, if you happen to hear them, what goes through your mind? Though? What do you What do you think? Uh, like, what, How does it affect you when you hear that? Well, um, because she's no longer here, it it's kind of a bittersweet thing. It's, uh, I think, you know, gee, that's my mom. Wow. That's my mom. She, if only she had wanted to be famous, you know, but I think it's, it's cool that, that she was a part of it. You know, I kind of turned into a little kid where, you know, as I was saying before, how I would brag about my mom used to talk to Stevie on the phone all the time. Um, but uh, the songs are beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful, and I'm just, I'm proud. I'm really proud. Yeah, the, the one thing that I came across, and this actually shows you about the longevity of Motown, though, is that, you know, the AARP magazine had a feature on Motown because of its 60th anniversary, and they interviewed some people. But one of the people, they talked about Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and someone at Spotify said that that's one of the, top 500 most streamed songs that they play that. <laughs> and, and your mom's on that song so and my mommy's on that song yep yeah so uh it's interesting and fitting that she's immortal in that way you know that people may not know who she is but she's forever immortalized on that song and so much else though too and she's also yeah. She's also memorialized in the hearts of, you know, everyone she came into contact with, though, too. Yeah, yeah, it's I'm a little overcome here uh, just hearing you say that that was that I couldn't say it any better myself. Um, but, yeah, she's definitely been immortalized and, and 
um, is a part of this really cool thing called Motown. You know, and uh, you know when you you said to me uh, it's the 60th anniversary, which I, I had been paying attention, but not really. Um, and I guess because of I in doing that, that that makes me older too. But um, yeah, 60 years of of just creating, you know, memories and hits and things where people have had weddings and birthdays and major events, children. It's just such an amazing thing, you know. And again, my my mom was a part of that. Yeah, that's really, so cool. really, really incredible. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Doku, I know that, uh, you know, you have to get going. So I, I just wanted to have this opportunity to speak with you. And oh, I'm so glad you did take that time for me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you for speaking with us. And uh, I think you've said a lot of interesting things that I think people will find interesting, too. <laughs> I hope so. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Mark. Bye. Bye. Metro 30 is produced in collaboration with the Youngstown Radio Reading Service. Visit metromonthly.net for news, features, and the Valley's most complete calendar of events. And be sure to subscribe to the Metro 30 podcast.